You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. What is your story about education? For most people, it has been and still is. Go to a good school, get good grades, then walk through the door to a happy and successful life. It's an appealing story. Then why are so many ultra-successful happy people dropouts, self-educated, and psychologically unemployable? Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest has written five books, spoken at Harvard, TEDx events, and other prestigious international conferences. He's been featured in Inc. Magazine and Forbes. And he helps entrepreneurial experts dramatically increase their impact and success. He also grew up in a primitive Guatemalan village with a small tribe of Mayan Indians and educated himself. Get ready to be entertained and inspired by David C. Baker. David, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you. I I was wondering where you were going with that, like psychologically unemployable. And then you mentioned my name. It's like, wow, that's a but but you're exactly right. Yeah. No, thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to be speaking with you. I looked into your background, listened to several of the podcast episodes, and I was immediately intrigued by the chance to chat on your show. Thank you so much. And I was intrigued by what I've read about you and also by your book, which I absolutely love. By the way, Psychologically Unemployable is the title of a book by a mentor of mine who is a brilliant and very successful entrepreneur, Mr. Jeffrey Combs, who uh, is a multimillionaire, self-made, and uh, had to overcome six years of um substance abuse before he achieves success. And his belief is that most entrepreneurs are, they're psychologically unemployable in that they can't work for somebody else. Right. Yeah, they can't work for some. That's like the first premise. So now they have to go and figure something else out. Right. And a lot of those people that you're describing, including myself, we've been effective employees, but we were 
we were annoying employees because we always had better ideas about how something could be done. We were hardworking, intelligent. We contributed a lot to the organization, but we always had a better way to do things, right? And so it, you almost have to break out on your own and test that. You discover in the process that some of your ideas weren't all that workable, but you don't discover that until you just fall on your own face, basically, and, and keep picking yourself up. So I think that makes sense. I know a lot of people who are very successful as entrepreneurs who were unemployable to some degree, not because they weren't smart, not because they didn't work hard, but because they always had a better idea, right? Mm-hmm. And my my history, too. I mean, I, I've taught in universities in drama programs, and uh, I, as an employee, and as a member of committees, I was a disaster. But in the classroom, creatively with the students, I was at the top of my game. And I'm much better outside of any institution. So I really get that. Now, for my storytellers today, you're going to notice we're going to be taking a slightly different turn here. Rather than the traditional development of this story by going into biography, etc., we're going to focus on some essential things that are keys to David's book and the way I believe he sees business and the world. So, David, one of the intriguing things in your book is you talk about the most important element of intelligence. What defines intelligence for you? What would that be? It's really pattern matching. And when I started to think about that, it was so interesting to me to look at how early, for instance, you can begin to assess a child's intelligence even before they can speak by assessing the degree to which they are good at matching patterns. So you can hold up duck, duck, goose, for instance, and they'll point to the goose because it doesn't match the pattern, sort of reverse pattern matching. And then when you explore that concept around curiosity, and, and intelligence has very little to do with formal learning. I've learned that for sure in many ways, uh, even from my grandfather who dropped out of school after like I think the sixth grade, but was one of the most intelligent people I knew. But he was really good at pattern matching. And in other words, seeing situations and figuring out what was happening that was similar between them so that he could use that knowledge to then predict what was going to happen next. So this pattern matching theme runs through our lives from when we are very, very young children, almost like probably the day we're born up until we're no longer contributing to society. So yeah, it's pattern matching for sure. And that ties to positioning, right? It's, it's so tied to positioning. I love what you're saying. Now, would you all, when I read it, the thing that jumped to mind is that it, it ties to our ability to perceive systems. In other words, to see uh, the entire forest, not just the trees. So if you're seeing systems then you're able to put effective patterns into play when you're running a business. Not like not unlike what Michael Gerber talks about in the in the E Myth. Right, exactly. And and Michael's a friend of mine, actually. I had him come keynote a conference that I was doing. And it was actually for creatives. It was held in Cancun. There were three hundred and fifty principals there. And 
I remember he stood up and he's, he's the short, stocky guy with a deep, gravelly voice. And he said to all of these creative firm owners, you need to run your business like a McDonald's, right? And it, his point was that we need to create systems so that when we hire good people who fit the culture, they have a way of working. Now, of course, all of these folks were pretty – not all of them. Most of them were upset by that notion. But – it's absolutely true because if you're going to scale a business beyond yourself, you have to apply systems thinking. One thing that's interesting, though, a footnote about that is that the folks who develop these systems, the pattern matchers, these intelligent folks who can see patterns and then develop them into systems, those are the worst people on the planet for data compliance. So the people who are best at putting systems together are the worst at following them. The people who are the best at following systems are the worst at putting them together. So sometimes you have very effective principles at putting at, – by principle, I mean CEOs who, who put these, these systems in place, and they lose some credibility because they don't follow them themselves – but that's really a misnomer. It's you know, We have to recognize the difference between system followers and system producers. So, yeah, it's just an interesting footnote on that story. Oh, I love that. I love it. It's an interesting insight. Now, your book is called The uh, Business of Expertise. So how do you define expertise? That's such a great question. I remember my podcast partner was asking me that question, and it just stopped me in my tracks because – I didn't have a ready definition for that, which is really silly, right? How in the world can you write a book about expertise and not be able to instantly, without thinking about it, define expertise? So I began thinking about that question quite a bit. And to me, and this is not a fancy definition, but expertise is essentially what people regularly will pay you for um, when they want your advice on something. So in the context of this book, Expertise is related to thinking, not doing, and it's something that you are selling regularly to people who want your opinion on something. So that's how I'm defining expertise. There are lots of different forms of expertise that I'm just simply not addressing, like a, a carpenter who's really, really skilled at something, who's doing something. That, that is just as valid an expertise, but it's not what I'm talking about. So thinking that you're selling regularly to people who want to buy it from you. Would you also include in that the sense of an expert in any area is a person who has achieved and demonstrates consistently a mastery of what they're doing, selling, teaching? Yes, for sure. But the world that I'm in is very much selling that thinking for a living. So it's not just the ability to do it, it's the ability to help other people do the same thing. So mm. it, there's a there's a teaching component there as well. So mm -hmm. like if you think about um, like a consultant, an advisor, a lawyer, somebody who can apply a particular principle to a specific situation. But yes, absolutely, that would be a part of the definition as well. Mastery. Now, what I love too in your book is that you begin to explain that. Positioning is so key, and without it, you're really you're fighting a losing battle. You're probably going to be giving your power away when you're trying to build your business. And I associate that with the ability to perceive patterns clearly as well. 
Right. Yeah, this positioning thing is it's almost impossible to overestimate its value to you as a contributing human to your society. So in in one way, positioning, even if you don't sell your expertise, positioning is the only way you can get smart because our world is so much more complicated than it used to be. The world's been Googleized and we have so much more knowledge than we've ever had, which makes it impossible for any human to be an expert in all of these things that they used to be. So we have to narrow our focus, right? And without that focus, without that positioning, we'll never be smart enough in a particular area. So even if nobody ever buys that from you, that's a key component. The other reason, though, we want to do positioning is because we have to craft this this space in the marketplace that makes it less likely that a lot of people can be a substitute for our expertise. So our positioning needs to be so narrow that we end up with not thousands, but just dozens maybe of people who are equally good at whatever it is that we have defined for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and that gives us the power in the marketplace, not only the intelligence we're developing because of this pattern matching, but also the fact that we don't – there are not that many viable substitutes for what we do. That's, that's where the power comes from, those two things. In a sense, when you're positioned correctly, you get closer to becoming the only game in town. Right, exactly. Uh, you're probably familiar with, you may even be friends with – Jay Abraham, who calls it preeminence. Mm. No, I've heard the name, but don't know, don't know Jay. Preeminence, right. Now, we don't, some people, when they think about their own positioning and they try on different options, they get really excited when they discover that they're sort of the only game in town. What I demonstrate in the book is that there is some optimum guardrail on both sides of that equation. So we don't want to have too many viable substitutes, but we also don't want to be the only game in town because that indicates that we have gone too far and we're probably running out of opportunity. So we want to define, we want to stake out a positioning where there aren't too many competitors, but there are not too few competitors as well. I'm not talking about like Peter Thiel's concept of moving from zero to one. That's a different concept where you have like an Uber that's trying to own that that entire market or Google who's trying to own the search market. Very few people have that opportunity, right? For the rest of us mere mortals, we, we, need, we need to define a positioning that doesn't have too few or too many competitors. There's that really perfect sweet spot there as experts. Mm. Now, just for, uh, again, for the benefit of the uh, our storytellers, how would you concretely define positioning? So positioning is really a definition of where you are going to apply your expertise so that you are less interchangeable. And um, positioning is going to be comprised in part by who your right fit client is. So I can use myself as an example. If we step outside of my speaking and writing career, we look at my advising career. So a right fit client for me is somebody who runs a marketing firm that's privately held, that generates at least $120,000 per employee that is ready for change, 
that is in one of these 35 countries where I have access to the decision maker. So those are the, the more finer elements of my positioning. Then you would, you would have to add some things like, okay, what do I help them with? Do I help them do better work? No, I don't. Do I help them make better business decisions? Yes. So all of these are the, and, and I'm an advocate of being really forthright about that. So on my website, I will help a prospect look at this and self-select themselves out of the running. The way most people think of positioning, though, is just the opposite of that. They want to, like, uh, sort of post or paste all these magnets outside the edge of their business, hoping that they'll attract metal filings, any prospect that might possibly be interested in working with them. That's how non-confident or unconfident um, experts think. They want to attract opportunity all the time. Real experts think differently than that. They believe that positioning is mainly about saying no to opportunity that's not a right fit and, and narrowing their scope and not broadening it out of fear. Most experts who haven't figured this out are driving around their marketplace in an unmarked van and in the back there are like 30 magnetic signs and they stop about a block before they get to the prospect. They rifle through those magnetic signs. They try to pick the one that most fits what the prospect wants to hear. They slap it on the van. They drive the last block and there they are. Experts don't do that. Experts don't have variable positioning in the back of the van. They paint the van. They know exactly who they are, which means, and here's where the pain comes in, it means that they will not work for most of the people who want to work for them because it's not a good fit for them. That's positioning. It's a, ter it's a terrifying process. I love it because what you're describing demands that you are very strong and almost unshakable in your belief, your confidence in what you, in who you are, and what you're offering to the marketplace. Right, exactly, and and you're so confident in that, and what you're good at, and knowing what you're not good at, that you would rather starve than do something that you're not a good fit for. And and I do believe that. I mean, my my business has been very strong, very profitable for 20-some years, but I will go down with the ship rather than take on work that's not a good fit for me. And if at any point the marketplace decides that I'm not a good fit for them, that's fine. I'll go find something else to do. I love it. But it also brings up another thing. In order to do that, you should and, and you must um, – have a premium price on your services and products. Right. No, so, yeah. Go yeah, ahead. go ahead. <laughs> well, because no. what, what, what it brings to mind is maybe could it be that some people don't approach positioning the way you've defined it because they also have an issue with asking a very high price price for their services. Right. Yeah. And I think with some of those folks, they're actually losing work because their prices are too low. Hmm. There's, there's something experts, no matter how good you are, whether you're earlier on this path or later on this path, your pricing should scare you. It should terrify you a little bit. So let's say you have this fairly defined package and you sell it to a client and everything goes fine. The client's happy. You're done with the project. Another client comes along and they're a good fit for this same service package. 
you should raise the price for that. And let's say it's 80000 the first time, and, and you say, you know what? I think I, I've gotten a little smarter. I've gotten a little better. It's going to be 90000 this time. And then you say to yourself, before you ever present that $90,000 price, this seems too high to me. I'm not sure. And you drop it down to eighty four. Well, your, your own pricing should always scare you a little bit. It should always drive you forward. If it isn't scaring you, you're probably not challenging yourself. Now, there are people out there who are not very self-aware that are charging way too much money, and everybody around them knows they're incompetent. The only person who know, doesn't know they're incompetent is, is that one person. But for most experts, they're worth quite a bit more than they're charging. And what's holding them back is not the marketplace. It's their own sense of their understanding of money, their understanding of value. And they, you know, some of those folks are going to fix it themselves because they are very confident people. Other folks are just, they just don't think that way. And the only way that that level of confidence will increase internally for them is with marketplace acceptance, right? Now, if you're if you want to be accepted by the marketplace, the solution to that is to pay attention to a smaller part of the market that more dearly wants what it is that you have to offer. But if you're just putting up this generalist sign everywhere, just hoping, begging that somebody will hire you, that's a recipe for lack of confidence, right? You have to align very closely what it is that you do with what it is that people are losing sleep over at night and then chose those, choose, choose, those, choose those people to sell to and price your work so that it's sustainable for you. Mm. You know, this talk about being able to stand comfortably with the price that you demand and deserve brings up for me, uh, as you know, obviously you're on a show called Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I believe that everything is a story in our lives. Every belief we have is a story that we have made up and that words themselves, single words, are powerful stories. And the word money is one of the most powerful stories in our culture and it has a very, unfortunately, very negative charge. Do you want to explore that a bit? What, do you, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. So let's say you go out to dinner with another couple and the four of you are sitting there. What are the things you can talk about and what are the things that would make people uncomfortable at dinner? Like you could talk about politics, what's happening in the news. You could talk about sex probably, about some show that you're watching. You, there are two things you don't talk about. Usually you don't talk about how that other couple raises their kids. That's sort of off limits, right? And and you're kind of hoping they don't talk about how you raise your kids too. The other thing you don't talk about so much is money. It's like there's you, – you know what they do in the bedroom. You don't know what they make. It's this, it's this strange taboo subject about um, how we interact with our worlds. And I don't really think that money has – any connection with with how valuable we are as human beings but it is a sign it's a measure of respect it's i call in the book i say money is the currency of respect in a business relationship and there's no reason not to talk about that like if somebody talks about uh, a proposal you've made to them and they say ah that's too expensive we can't afford that right now what they're really saying is that we don't value your expertise at that level. 
Now, that's okay. We should not be afraid of the truth. In fact, in our business conversations, we our goal should be to surface the truth as soon as possible and not to be afraid of that so that we can either embrace the relationship or move on. If somebody doesn't like your price and you know it's fairly reasonable, even if it scares you a little bit, you want to know right away. And it's okay if they don't value your expertise at that level. It is really strange. Isn't that how we talk so little about the money? Oh, totally. Um, uh, I really think that we've been um, in our culture. No matter what we say, we would rather not have to deal with money. You know, when you talked about it being a measure, why don't we talk about it? It is a measure. It's it's a it's a scorecard, and you know, we have no problem looking at a sports competition. And allowing that a high score is a is a marker for the player or the team's expertise and talent. Right. The team but that wins has the highest score. Exactly. And we expect that. And yet somehow asking for a lot of money and getting it becomes cloudy. It becomes a marker for some people of greed. That person is just so greedy. How, look at what they're getting away with, you know? Right, exactly. And I, I think like somehow we're not charitable if we ask for a lot of money. But the way I view it more is, who do I trust with the world's money? Do I trust them or do I trust me? Because that you should, if you're in a business relationship selling your expertise, you should be making a lot of money. Now, what you do with that money is a completely different question, and it's really none of your client's business. What if you give away a lot of it? Wouldn't that make a more compelling case for making more money or if you're really generous in other ways? Oh. It's just weird how we how we come up with these ideas. Like, I want to trust the world's money to the people who are good at making it and who are good at spending it. So it's just a strange – it's just strange concoction. I'm not sure where it all comes from. It must be oh. a psychological thing. Oh, may I challenge you? Sure. You just said something that I found very interesting, that somehow it would make it more justifiable if you found out that the person was giving away a lot of money. You see, that to me is part of the acculturation that is not healthy. Now, I'm not saying that we should not be generous, but if we feel compelled to be generous— we're doing it out of a sense of obligation, a sense of guilt, not because we really want to. It's fake. And why not say, if the person wants to use a good portion of their money to buy antique cars, that should be okay too. Oh, I agree with you for sure. Yeah, I, I was just trying to think about how this is processed in people's minds. I remember working with a firm in Kentucky that had a very religious background. They weren't in a religious business, but the individuals there had a very religious background. And they were uncomfortable with how I was trying to help them make more money. And I said, listen, you hired me to help you make a boatload of money. That's Now, I, I want you to make the money ethically. I don't care what you do with the money after you make it. I want you to make it ethically. So if you want a Mother Teresa approach, I'm not your guy. I'm the guy you hire if you want more of a Warren Buffett approach. And they were still very uncomfortable with this. And so I said, okay, let's stop for a second. 
Jesus is somebody that you admire a lot. Let's ima- now supposedly Jesus was a carpenter. So imagine with me what kind of furniture do you think Jesus made? Do you think it was cheap IKEA kind of furniture, or was it higher end quality that was very utilitarian but lasted a long time? And they said the latter, probably that. And I said, okay, how much do you think Jesus charged for the furniture? Now this really got at the heart of it for them because <laughs> they were very religious, right? And they said, well, I have no idea. And I said, I have no idea either. I said, but what I envision is that Jesus charged a lot of money for the furniture usually, and every once in a while when somebody couldn't afford it, he gave it away. But he charged a lot of money for it because he put a lot of work into it, and that's what it was worth. And it kind of blew their minds that I was using an example uh, from somebody that was one of their heroes. And you know, that's kind of how we have to start thinking about this stuff, right? We have to get uncomfortable as we envision how different people would have thought about money. I agree. I honestly think that we, everyone needs to examine their story around money and to be honest with it. You know, I love it when I speak to people who say, well, you know what, uh, I'm struggling, but you know what, uh, don't offer me an opportunity because money's really not that important. Mm. Really. I think it's right up there with oxygen and it's not that important, yet. It can cause divorce. It can cause uh, murder. It can cause theft. Mm. Well, if it's not that important, why would it? So if the storytellers wonder where we're going with this, it's all related to your ability to stand in your power and own your value so that you can position yourself in a way that you deserve and to deliver, I believe, the best value to the marketplace. Would you agree with that, David? I do, absolutely. And I think a foundational component of that is really knowing what the heck you're talking about. That's really being an expert. But even around that, apart from that core concept, it also involves how you present yourself as an expert. And that's one thing that a lot of genuine experts miss because they want to be very, very accessible. And in our culture, experts are not that accessible. So it's not just about this core inner strength of really knowing what you're talking about, but it's also how you conduct yourself. In other words, just ask better questions. Don't be immediately accessible all the time. You know, there's all kinds of little, little tips there that will help experts present themselves as experts as well. Yes, yes. Now, I, it, you made me think of, a, of an example. That, um, let's say I was uh, going to open a, a business and I was going to sell wristwatches. I could think in terms of, let me get wristwatches of all different prices and definitely have a lot of pri- wristwatches that are, quote unquote, very affordable to a lot of people. So someone could buy a wristwatch for $90, $30, or four or $500. That seems to make sense, right? Well, on a certain level, it does, right? It does. If you want to be the, yeah, if you want to be the one-stop shop for, for, for watches, but what if you want to be a special watch store? Okay. How special? Well, maybe, maybe you're selling just inexpensive disposable watches because people lost theirs or they need a cheap gift, or maybe you want to be 
selling only really expensive watches that make a statement, like you just got a huge promotion or bonus at work and you want a way to memorialize it. It, in other words, we're, you're, you're making a positioning decision there, right, that is going to match what the buyer wants, and they're willing to pay a lot or willing to pay a little bit. It's meeting a need based on positioning. How expensive would the watch be for that kind of uh, person? That well, kind of- <laughs> yeah, I would, in, I'd in think it'd have mind. to be at least 10000 at least 10000 but probably in the twenty dollars to $80,000 range, I'm thinking. Okay, what if I came to you and I said, David... The store I want to open, the lowest price for my watch is 250000 I love that concept. I no longer can afford that watch, but I want to meet somebody who can. And I want to see the car they're driving, too. Well, you know why I bring it up? That store exists. It's here, huh? in, it's here in Toronto, in Hazleton Lanes. I heard about it in a Genius Network podcast. And it's fascinating to me because they were using it as an example of taking the position or taking the stand of not worrying about I have to appeal to the masses and sell a lot of what I have, but trusting that there is a market for someone who will resonate with the value of what you have and you'll be able to sell it. And apparently when they looked at the numbers of this business at the end of a year, the number of sales were not that large, but the profits and income were astronomical. Right. So they did a little bit of market testing probably, and and they looked around at what the market could support and so on. Yeah, that's a great example of positioning. And, you know, the low end of that, which would exist and thrive based on volume, right, and not profit, for an individual sale is also just as viable. It's just knowing exactly what you are going to do, what you're good at in the marketplace, and then chasing that. I think experts are more akin to that store that you just talked about, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's fascinating. Can you talk a bit about the various behaviors that a a business person may not even be conscious of that they're doing that demonstrate to their potential buyers that they, the business person, do not have real confidence in themselves and they're positioning themselves badly. Yes, for sure. So wrapping their expertise in customer service would be a prime example of that. And somebody's going to hear that and say, what? Are you saying you shouldn't be very sensitive to what customers want? I said, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that there's it's a zero-sum game. And so the lamer your positioning, the more important customer service is. So that's one. This whole notion of delighting the customer, for instance, is it's got to die, that notion. It's like real experts do not even think about delighting their customers. They just deliver value, and they deliver value on their own terms. So that's one of them. Another is not is being so busy solving client problems that they never put their feet up and think. They're not developing additional IP regularly. They're, they have to make a living every living minute of the day, and they're so busy that, for instance, they're not speaking at conferences. They're not writing a book, or they're not writing an article, or they're not a guest on somebody's podcast, kind of like we're doing today. That's the mark of somebody who's scurrying around to make clients happy and isn't spending time developing their own expertise. And then, of course, being 
being very, very available, like like an expert who has a website that says, uh, you know, I'm always available for coffee. Let me know when you'd like to get together or con- fill out this pop-up form for your 30-minute free consultation. It's like experts don't do that. It just sounds way too desperate. It sounds like somebody who's trying to be an expert or somebody who's not all that busy because he or she is looking for more people to pay their money, their their hourly fee. So those are those are examples of people are doing things that really don't they don't mirror expertise really. I like that. That's that's very um uh it's it's it it sheds light on on uh some some myths that people have about how to do business well. Now, pardon my ignorance. You 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 said IP. Uh, translate that for me. What what does this uh, do? Intellectual property. So uh, uh, okay. Yeah, that's something that that only you have. So we talked about positioning. You might end up positioning your firm so that there are only ten people like you in the world, or up ten to two hundred is the typical number. But then between those ten, you're the only one that has this sort of intellectual property. You uh, spoke in your, you wrote in your book about uh, the concept of flow, which is very important and it's related to positioning. Could you uh, tell us about that? Yeah, it's like you get into this groove where you're so good at what you do and it becomes so comfortable. And the temptation as an expert, especially a profitable, successful expert, is to stay right there rather than throw away a bunch of it and challenge yourself again and to move from that level of competence into a new area of creativity. What what experts do is they get comfortable there, but they also get uncomfortable with the idea of of ditching part of their expertise to make room for new expertise. There's this cycle that occurs with experts where every three, four, five years they reinvent themselves and they stay ahead of the pack. They're not looking back and wondering how many people are copying them or chasing them. They're always looking forward and reinventing themselves. Part of that um, IP or intellectual property as well. That's what I meant by flow. Mm. And you, you'd say in the book that if positioning leads to focus, which leads to expertise, and that package becomes flow, correct? Yes, exactly. Because if if the end result is expertise that we can charge a lot of money for, how do we get that expertise? Well, we have to put ourselves in a position where noticing patterns make sense. In other words, repeated application in similar circumstances. So I'm going to be an expert to help marketing firms that I need to see the inside of a lot of marketing firms. Okay. How do I put myself in a place where I see a lot of marketing firms? That's where the the focus or the positioning decision comes. So positioning allows repeated application, allows pattern matching, allows expertise. So those four things in order are, that cycle keeps repeating itself, and experts are—they keep reinventing themselves by putting themselves in the right places. Hmm. Very nice. Now, you also explain the relationship between using pattern recognition in a, in your business, monetizing it, and then turning it into intellectual property. Can you expound on that a bit? Yeah, so that doesn't come usually early in an expert's life, but as they start to get deeper and deeper and deeper into solving a particular client's problems, they'll start to see those deeper patterns that can often be turned into algorithms. So like in my case, I think I have 
uh, five or six different um, chunks of IP, so to speak. One of those is understanding exactly what staffing should look like in a firm, in a marketing firm. Like, how, what should the principal be doing? What should they not be doing? What are the three things they must shed? What are the nine things that are variable? How much of account service do you need? What are the safe combinations? So all of those things put together are what I call a functional model. Nobody else has that. And it comes, it's more of an advanced stage of expertise where you begin to systematize or, or, or put in a process, in a, in a black box, so to speak, the stuff that you're learning. And then you have something that you can package and not just sell by the hour, but you sell it as an application. Like now for me to do this for you, it's 20000 It's not $200 an hour. It's 20000 And you don't really have many options to get that anywhere else because nobody else is doing it. That's, that's how that process works. Hmm. I would love to talk a little bit about David C. Baker, the person, because I feel that it's so related to David C. Baker, the expert. And you've had a very um, adventurous life. Can you talk a bit about growing up with Mayan Indians? Yes. Yeah, so I was born in the U.S., but when I was four, we went to Costa Rica where we lived for a year. My parents were learning Spanish. I was dropped into a Spanish kindergarten. That's how I first learned Spanish. We were there for a year, and then when I was five, we went to a little tribe in Guatemala called San Miguel Acatan, where we lived with a, a tribe of Mayan Indians. There were about 20,000 in the whole tribe, 5,000 in the little village that we lived in, in the area. They did medical and literacy work. And so I just basically grew up there. I didn't know it was different at the time until I got to the U.S. And I ordered a correspondence course, and that's where I taught myself school. It wasn't homeschooled. It was more just order this course and sort of work your way through it. It didn't take long to do. So after two, three months or so in a year, then I could just wander the country on a motorcycle or horseback or hiking for the rest of the year, nine or ten months a year. So it was it was very primitive as well. So we didn't have running water. We didn't have electricity. It was very unique and also a wonderful experience. It taught me about independence, about um, thriving, about being by myself, about the opportunity to think and read a lot. When I was 18, came to the U.S. and lived here permanently and have lived here most of the time since then in different parts of the U.S. So that early upbringing really had a huge impact on how I think and how I work, I think. Weren't you also there during a time of uh, major upheaval? Yes. This, the folks that know that era in history, the, the Civil War was occurring in Guatemala at the time where there was a, a fight essentially between the, the guerrillas and, um, and the population that was helping the government. So, you know, more than 100,000 people were killed during that time. And we were there right in the middle of that. There were also things like volcanic eruptions and hurricanes and so on. But at the time, it, it didn't strike us as all that odd. It was just like this is kind of a part of life, maybe like living in Detroit 20 years ago or something like that, uh, not Detroit now. And so it you learn to sort of adapt. Like, you know, you, you come across 
come over the crest of a hill and, and there's machine guns and you have to stop or you have to drive at night with a light on in your car or you have to be armed all the time or you had to be prepared to be stopped at any given point. And, of course, communication wasn't all that widespread back then either. There, there weren't telephones as we know them. There were telegrams that took um, – you know, they were either instantaneous at three cents a word or there was a, a male guy that walked, took seven days to deliver a letter. So it was just a very different world. It was almost like living in the Wild West, but in the 20th century, really. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you shared that because um, I want people to understand that your background is not the comfortable, typical, traditional going to the Ivy League school to learn what you learned. You basically developed your knowledge and the gifts that you now offer to the world by confronting life head-on as a boy. Mm, yeah, absolutely. You know? Right. Now, you also have a real wild sense of adventure I see in your life. Do, am I wrong? No, it, for me, it's it's almost a curse because I can't do things to relax that allow my mind to wander. So I tend to gravitate towards those things that are so consuming. Like if you make a mistake, then somebody's going to get hurt. So things like uh, for a while, I taught um, high performance motorcycle riding and racing with the code Superbike School. I fly airplanes and helicopters. I love doing photography, different trips around the world. I'm actually headed out from here to the airport on one of those and also doing fine woodworking. So it's it's not it's it's not so much that they're adventurous, it's just that they consume me so I don't think about work, which is uh, th that's the primary component of a relaxing thing to me is something that I can do that, that will not allow me to think about work. So I tend to gravitate towards those things rather than watching um, movies or reading novels or something. I, I can let my mind wander doing those things. Well, you know, when you talk about the high speed, uh, what is it, motorcycle? It's not racing. Is it racing? It's teaching racers. So we're on a racetrack. Well, yeah, yeah. On di well, 18 different racetracks. Yeah. I would say that that qualifies as a a pretty daring and dangerous and adventurous uh, activity. Uh, have, do you do, um, have you done any skydiving? I have not. That's the, my wife, Julie, has put her foot down and said, you can't do that. Now, I'll probably sneak off and do it someday. That's about, <laughs> about the only thing I haven't done. <laughs> I'd love to do it. Even though I'm afraid of heights, I, I would still love to do that. There's just something that's very drawing to that. But I'm going to have to sneak off to do that one. David, would you say that you're more prone to make choices based on reason or imagination? Or is that not a fair question? No, it's a fair question. About I've done a little bit of research in this area, and about 1 in 15 people actually makes that kind of a decision depending on both of those legs, so imagination and reason. And I'm one of those rare birds that tries to do both. So I, it needs to be logical. I'm an intensely logical person. But so I need to understand the logic and then I can pitch the logic and say, yeah, I understand it. I'm going to do it anyway. So in my mind, I, I don't have a problem making very quick decisions, but I want to understand the implications of those decisions. And then I can take huge risks as well. Well, you know what? Um, people who live primarily from the imagination are in good company. Certainly Einstein um, you spoke about his belief that the imagination was 
actually much more important than what he would call the facts and reason, and that he developed a lot of his theory uh, based on wild flights of imagination. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what would you say, how how does um, imagination and a sense of adventure enrich the work that you do? Well, the more you are a focused expert, the more your your view is going to be very, very narrow. And the danger there is that you're missing the larger perspective of the world around you, right? And that's one of the features of being an expert in a very modern world is that you have a very narrow point of view because the more narrow it is, the more likely it is that you can master it, right? So to counter that danger of not seeing the bigger context. I think your personal life needs to be so different and so interesting that you're not getting really smart in an unattached way. So you have to explore all kinds of other things apart from anything that has to do with money so that what you do to make money is not unattached to reality. Those are how I think those two things are tied together. Wow, I never heard it expressed that way. And what you've done for me is I'm going to start exploring more adventurous things to do. Thank you. Yes. Now, what ignites your flame and makes you jump out of bed with a sense of purpose every day? For me, it's really wanting to know, as in K-N-O-W. I love knowledge. I love the confidence that comes from knowledge. I love being able to help people. I love discovering new knowledge. And so it's that it's that fresh day that gives me new opportunities to learn. That's what gets me really excited. I love that. Because if we stop learning, we're actually beginning to um, deteriorate. Right, exactly. I was always a fan of Bob Dylan's music, and I loved the line in his one of his songs, he not busy being born is busy dying. Oh, right. Yeah, you that's know? a great one. Now, if someone's flame has diminished or died, cause I, I think a lot of people walk around as if their flame has diminished. How can they begin to reignite it? The first thing I would do is to figure out if there are some business decisions you are making quite apart from your expertise that are quenching that flame or basically, you know, putting a cup over that flame for you. Because I like, here's an example. The, the father of compromise is really panic. Like not having enough work, for instance, makes you compromise your expertise just so you can land something quickly. So the first thing I would do rather than pitching all of this hard-earned expertise you have is look around you and say, is there something wrong with my business itself so that, that it's forcing me to compromise? And if that doesn't fix it, then I would recognize that life gives us many, many opportunities now and we can reinvent ourselves. Life, our work is no longer a life sentence like it used to be. We can do something for three or 15 years and then go on and do something else and bring all of that experience with us and thrive even more. So make a ridiculous decision and just just say no to everything that you've been doing and create a new life for yourself. 
which might mean all kinds of financial sacrifice in the interest of doing that well. But those are the two decisions I would make in that order. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Thanks for being so forthright about that. David, do you have a favorite book besides your own? I think, um, I'll tell you, Anne Lamott is one of my favorite authors, and Bird by Bird is a fantastic book. It's about writing and about life. She's the kind of author that I'll buy anything she writes. Uh, Dan Pink would be another one, but Anne Lamont, Bird by Bird, probably would be a great one. How do you spell her last name? Um, L-A-M-O-N-T, I believe it is. And is it Anne with an E or just Anne? With an, with an, with an E at the end, yes. Yeah. And Dan- it's L-A-M-O-T-T, sorry. L-A-M-O-T-T. Oh, Lamont, okay. Beautiful. I'm going to look that one up. Dan Pink, I have heard of him. I'm not sure. Do you know? Can you name one of his books? Drive would be run. And then he just released another book on timing. And um, he's the one that endorsed my most re- recent book. He's He was the speechwriter for Al Gore, and he's gone on to write some very seminal business books. Beautiful. Hey, congratulations. He endorsed your book. That's wonderful. The, which one did he endorse? The, uh, the one that the- I read? Yes, the business of expertise. That's right. His, his name's on the cover. Beautiful. How about a favorite quote? Probably Leonardo da Vinci's quote: um, "Learning never exhausts the mind." That's probably a life story of mine, and it's uh, come back to that quote frequently. I never heard that. That's wonderful, and it's so simple too. Right. Never, yep. never exhaust the mind. Yep. Five words. Just five words. I like those short quotes. It means something. David, are there any things that, any questions that I should have asked you that I haven't? Well, you know, people are listening to this and they're thinking, how does this apply to me? And they have some gut instinct about how that applies to them. Don't overthink it. Just make a quick decision and follow your instincts. That's one thing that I think um, your listeners might really benefit from. Okay. And how can people contact you? So my website is davidcbaker.com. It just went live two days ago. It had been up for seven years before that, so changed everything up. So that's a good chance to look at something fresh. And then the book is at expertise.is, expertise.is. I love that. How did you get that, expertise.is? I've never seen .is. Well, I was looking, I thought, ah, obviously expertise.com is taken. I don't know who has it. So I was just looking for around for other options and found that one. It was really cheap. So I thought, oh, I'll grab that. That's great. And would you like to add any additional final thoughts? Well, just thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate the conversation. It was fun. Yes, absolutely, my friend. And where are you going on this trip, your uh, photography exhibition? There's a really old theater just outside Philadelphia that a friend of mine has gotten permission for us to go in and shoot all day tomorrow. So we're it'll be cold. Uh, there won't be any electricity or heating, but um, there's supposedly a really old theater with all kinds of interesting color in there. So it's a part of my chasing of industrial decay. So that's where we're headed. Do you go in with several different cameras? Uh, for this trip, I'm just taking one because I'm flying, so I don't want to be burdened with too many. So I'll just be taking my Canon setup. Beautiful. David, thank you so much for enriching our audience today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and David C. Baker. Pay this forward. 
let people know that they can enjoy this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. And for everyone who visits the site, there is a free gift waiting for you, an ebook that I created called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. I created that for you who want to learn how to empower your communication, how to become authentic storytellers to enrich your personal life and your business life. We spoke, as I always do, with my guests about books today. And remember that we have a sponsor called Audible, and that Audible offers to you, the listeners of this show, a free download of any audiobook of your choice. You get to choose from more than 180,000 titles, and you also get one month free trial of all of Audible's service. To claim your free audiobook, simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. There were many, many nuggets of valuable lessons that David offered today. I'm going to make it simple for you and distill it into one overriding thought. And we can actually distill it into one word, worthiness. If you recall, David spoke about many experts not understanding their own worth, their own value, so they underprice themselves. They behave in such a way as if they're desperate for business. They give their power away. We all do that to an extent in life. During the next week, I would like you to think about where in my life am I giving my power away? Where am I not owning my worthiness, not allowing myself to feel that I have greatness within me? And I'm going to read to you from a card in a deck called Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. And here's what it says on the front of the card. Decide that you are worthy. On the back, it says, If you say you're worthy, you are. If you say you're not worthy, you're not. Either way, you'll grow into your story. During the next week, meditate on that question. Let it empower you to claim your worthiness and to help you do that. Begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.